0: You know, I feel like our whole, whole household sort of collectively decided that we wouldn't try and do anything substantive today, right? Yeah, <laughs> you know, that we would sort of shut down because the world was shutting down.
1: It's almost a medieval mindset of reading omens or
0: something. I don't know. <laughs> Welcome to In the Weeds with Nicole Asquith, exploring the way culture shapes our relationship to the natural world. This is the second in a series of episodes I'm calling Socially Distance With, in which I touch base with former guests during this time of confinement, see how they're doing, and see what they have to say about the pandemic and what it means for our future. In this one, I have the pleasure of reconnecting with geologist Marcia Bjornrud. I interviewed her about her book, Timefulness, How Thinking Like a Geologist Can Help Save the World, in episode three. If you haven't listened to it yet, I strongly suggest you check it out. Marcia is super smart, Her mind has a poetic turn, and yet she thinks with the honesty and precision of a scientist. As you'll hear, we ended up talking quite a bit about viruses. Even though she's a geologist, not a biologist, she reads the history of life in The Rock Record. She's one of those people you feel like you could talk to about almost anything. Hello, how are you?
1: Okay, we had an absolutely crazy weather day. Oh (laughs) yeah? Yeah. Started out brilliantly sunny, and then we had a furious snowstorm, and about two inches of snow accumulated, and then it hailed a little bit, and now it's sunny again, and most of the snow has melted. So it feels a bit like whiplash, (laughs) three seasons in one day or something.
0: We've had a slightly odd day, not quite as dramatic as that, but overcast, very windy, and I don't know, I feel particularly susceptible to the effects of the weather with this yeah. what's going on right now. You know, I feel like our whole, whole household sort of collectively decided that we wouldn't try and do anything substantive today. <laughs>
1: right. Yeah.
0: You know, that we would sort of shut down because the world was shutting down.
1: It's almost a medieval mindset of reading omens or something. I don't know.
0: <laughs> yeah, I like that idea. So h- are you healthy and well? Yeah, relatively speaking?
1: So far, and we're in a part of the world that really so far hasn't been much affected. Um, Milwaukee is the ground zero here in Wisconsin, but the northern part of the state so far, um, very few cases. We are statewide under you know stay-at-home order and ever- people are being good about it, but really very few cases in our area.
0: Oh, that's good. So is there a geologist's perspective on a pandemic like this?
1: Yeah, I've had so many different thoughts. Um, first of all, I think it's been true throughout all of geologic time that microbes are in charge. (laughs) And certainly this pandemic has shown that a tiny pathogen can do the unthinkable, which is basically shut down the mighty engine of capitalism in short order. So it's it's reminded us that we are not in charge of our destinies. I've also thought, and this is really a dark thought, that in the geologic past, mass extinctions are moments when all the rules changed for evolution and what followed from those events are times of great biological innovation. Of course, it has taken, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of or millions of years for that. But there are analogs. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying this is a, a mass extinction. I certainly hope not. But it's a moment where the, the normal rules are suspended, and it's an inflection point for us where we can choose what comes next. I think since our system has been shown to be fragile and vulnerable, we, we can choose to seize the opportunity to innovate and reconstruct in a way that will make us more resilient in the face of the next crisis. So yeah. that's one analog that I've thought of.
0: Do you have some specific thoughts about how that might be done?
1: Well, I, I certainly think this has shown into high um, relief the, the inequalities in our our society. Everybody is affected, but of course, those who are were already more vulnerable are disproportionately disadvantaged here. It's also shown us that we are, ironically, in a sophisticated, high tech society less prepared for the unexpected than maybe a subsistence culture. And yeah. I would hope, I would hope that this would be a wake-up call for people to realize that the laissez-faire economic system isn't looking out for our long-term common good. And maybe, finally, it'll be time for some long-term planning, the idea that it's a good thing for a society to have buffers, and nest eggs to tide the collective over in times like this, rather than having the entire economy collapse in a matter of weeks. It's, it's really incredible to me that so much damage can be done in sh- such short order. And if we're wise, we'll think hard about how to build in resiliency and redundancy into our social, political, and economic system.
0: Hmm. It's interesting. One of the things I've noticed here is a kind of return to old-fashioned homespun habits. A couple of things that come to mind are there's a group of women here who are sewing masks, a collective, and they're all pooling together resources, you know, fabric and elastic and thread and so on. And then in my immediate block, we've all been trying to figure out how to get food I grow vegetables and a lot of other neighbors are suddenly interested in growing vegetables so I found myself like walking down the block and exchanging a packet of seeds and picking up a frozen chicken from a neighbor you know things like so that a kind of
1: bartering like, economy and yeah yeah
0: and and there's something I mean what you what you were saying about how in some ways less technologically advanced societies are in some ways more resilient in a situation like this, it, it makes me think about how we start to think about what can we fall back on, you know, even though my examples may not be the best, but you start to sort of think about, well, what am I capable of? What are the resources within arm's length, as it were?
1: I agree. And I, I think that that's, it's a good thing. It, we're, we're being weaned away a little bit from the consumer culture, temporarily anyway. And people are finding that they're more resourceful than they maybe thought they were. Another thing, certainly in our neighborhood, it's never a particularly busy street, but there are really no cars. <laughs> and children have just reclaimed the space and families have reclaimed the space. There was a, a gigantic shoots and ladders game that the whole neighborhood put together with chalk at a large enough spacing out on the street that people were still social distancing. <laughs> right. People are just reclaiming the streets and yeah. I'm, I'm hopeful that maybe they'll be loath to relinquish control to cars when it when we come out of this.
0: That would be nice. I mean, the big question is will it be like a dream that people forget or will there be a longer lasting effect? One of the things that I hear sometimes, I just heard it in an interview, a fresh air interview is people saying something along the lines of you know this will be a significant event that you know will mark us all and that our children will remember and and although part of me thinks yeah sure you know this is definitely going to mark my kids the pessimist in me is like well <laughs> or <laughs> this could just be the first one you know yeah so wh- where do you stand on on that issue
1: mm. yeah there's there've been quite a few pieces I've read in the last couple of weeks. One today in Yale Environment 360 saying there's really two paths that we might take in terms of what happens next with respect to action on climate in particular. One could be that, that this moment has shown us that we can take action for the collective good if we have clear information about the risks of inaction. If we perceive those risks to be acute enough, we, we will do something. And maybe the apocalyptic mindset that this has put many of us in will there'll be some half-life of that and and maybe maybe that will motivate action on the other hand right now petroleum prices are at incredible lows i know here um i was out on my walk this morning there's a gas station selling gas for a dollar five a gallon so although that might rebound it, there, there will be no incentive if if prices remain that low. There's a huge glut of petroleum in the world market, and that's going to be there for a while. And so, the other path we could go is just revving up those economic engines as soon as possible and carrying on with the argument that we just must return to as high level of economic activity and restore things to normalcy as soon as possible and. Nobody wants to think about taking action on a longer-term crisis. So I think we're really at this inflection point, and it's so hard to see ahead. It depends on so many factors, um, but yeah. it, it feels like a moment of possibility. If if we had strong federal leadership, it, it it seems like an opportunity. That that's the one silver lining here. That it it's a big enough disruption that maybe change could happen in a way that. It, didn't seem possible just a month or two ago.
0: Yeah. I mean, that brings up a couple of thoughts for me. One is, of course, there are a lot of people that are going to be hit very hard economically, and there are some dire predictions about what this will do to people in terms of their livelihood. So that's going to be part of the whole struggle, right? The other thought is that, you know, one thing that this demonstrates is people can act on a really broad scale overnight. You know, and so it makes me think my husband was saying the other day that some advertisers, somebody who's in communications needs to use coronavirus to brand climate change. You know, they, they, they need to somehow capture the rhetoric and the ways in which people are thinking about this as really a collective effort. And one of the things I've thought about for some time is the analogies between war and what we're looking towards in the future, and that's a loaded analogy, right, in a lot of ways. But you see that that analogy being used a lot right now with the coronavirus, and there's there's a useful dimension to that because that's something that people understand, right? Like, they understand that their own personal needs have to sort of take second place to the, the greater need. And so it, it makes me wonder about that, too, about how the message gets out, you know, how this becomes a collective effort in some way.
1: Mm-hmm yeah I think that that's true. so far, we haven't found the narrative framing that seems to leverage change um, yeah yeah
0: so going back to your geologist's uh perspective, are pandemics written into the rock record in some way is there is is that something that we can know about in the past? I mean, I know that microbial life, as you were saying
1: it really modulates everything it's It's in charge of keeping. The atmosphere and the geochemical balance of the earth. But yeah, so not a there isn't a direct record of viruses or times when you know, disease maybe overtook certain groups of organisms. However, in our own genome, there is a fossil record of viruses. Many viruses remain in what biologists sometimes call junk DNA in our, our genetics. Much of that is just a kind of Viral load that we carry with us. There's been some recent work that suggested that perhaps certain diseases, including MS and ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, could be cases where old viral DNA is kind of reawakened for poorly understood reasons in some people's systems. And even more fascinatingly, sometimes viral genetic code has been repurposed in different lineages of organisms, including in placental mammals. That includes us. (laughs) The placenta is the thing that distinguishes us from, say, marsupials or the monotremes, which are the duck-billed platypus, basically. All the other mammals are placental mammals. And the placenta uses a protein that is thought to have come from an ancient virus that the ancestor of all placental mammals acquired sometime back in late Jurassic or early Cretaceous time. So it's a case of repurposing something that was initially a malign entity into something that gave rise to an entirely new group of organisms, including us. So I'm not a geneticist, but I pay some attention to, to the literature on this because I just find it a fascinating window into other mechanisms of evolutionary innovation. It's not always the case that just a random mutation gave rise to a new lineage. In some cases, there are viral and sometimes bacterial snippets of genetic material (laughs) that higher or larger animals have repurposed and then evolved.
0: That's fascinating. Can you explain for my listeners what a virus is because it's this funny class right it's not a living organism and yet it attaches itself right it reproduces by f- in relation to living organisms yeah.
1: so again I'm not a biologist but to a biologist a living thing has to be able to kind of stand on its own and not not rely on a host for nutrition to me that that that's a a definition that's problematic because there are no living things that are entirely independent (laughs) and many organisms do have symbiotic relationships, but viruses truly cannot live for any long period of time by themselves without a host. Um, And we don't know, for example, how long the coronavirus can can survive on, on surfaces. That's one of the big questions, but it can't in the longer term, you know, more than a few days survive without being inside a host And the origin of viruses is pretty unclear. Some people have postulated that they could have been a kind of proto-life form that then evolved into full-fledged life, but that doesn't really make sense given that they don't seem to have the capacity to survive very long without a host. So other people think they might have evolved after life emerged and were kind of a life form that gave up certain genes and what they gained in that process was the capacity to, to live very lightly, not have to worry, quote-unquote, about finding um, nutrients, but could just live off hosts. Generally, they're not so virulent that they completely kill off all of their hosts, because then they too would die. But they propagate themselves in different ways and um, you know can way out-evolve any larger organisms.
0: So, this is kind of a naive question, but is there a good side to viruses the way we've become accustomed to thinking that there are good bacteria and bad bacteria? Is there, from an evolutionary perspective, a positive aspect to viruses? Yeah, I,
1: I don't know. I mean, I've heard that there are, if you know, a typical teaspoon of soil or ocean water, there are many viruses teeming in, in either little ecosystem, and most of them are completely benign. They must be serving some kind of function in the environment. I, I and again I'm not a biologist.
0: Um, yeah, I know. You're just you're just, so, they're just out so there. interesting to talk to. <laughs> yeah. I'm drawing you into other territories. I mean
1: that's a really good question. Most of them are just they're just there. They're interacting with organic molecules and other microbial organisms in ecosystems everywhere. And it's only the rare ones that can jump species and and if we haven't evolved some kind of um protection against them then that they run amok. Um whether yeah I don't really know if if in our in our own bodies do we we host viruses that are doing good things for us I I don't know. We we have these yeah. ancient records of viruses we picked up and survived. <laughs> but um I think you know in general things like chickenpox virus is not a happy thing to have. You you have it all your life. It you can re emerge as shingles. Um,
0: Right. Yeah. And it seems like there's some relationship between viruses and the domestication of animals as well, right?
1: mm -hmm. Um,
0: That they're in some sense a function of the way human beings have evolved, at least some of the viruses that cause illnesses. Well, I did interview a biologist recently. I had an episode on GMOs with Nick Kaplinsky, who teaches at Swarthmore College. So maybe i 'll touch base with him again yeah. too, and see what he has to say.
1: The well, one thing I do know is they're an, at least an order of magnitude smaller than bacteria
0: <laughs> so their mm-hmm.
1: their they're size a virus is something on the order of tens of nanometers. A human hair is something like sixty thousand nanometers, and bacteria yeah. are hundreds of nanometers, so the viruses can be so small because they 've ditched most of their DNA. <laughs> And actually, they have RNA, not DNA even. So they're, they're incredibly small
0: and huh. and just myriad in, in number. So coming back to the more mundane reality, so you're, you're teaching long distance. How are your students managing this whole situation?
1: Yeah, it was especially difficult for our, our seniors. So I, I teach at a, a small liberal arts college. It's completely predicated on the residential part of the, the whole experience. And um the seniors basically had about three days to finish finals. We we have a weird trimester system so it, it coincided almost exactly when we had to shut everything down. We had finals week and, and the students had to say goodbye and they won't be coming back to campus. There won't be a, a commencement ceremony unfortunately. So that was the I think the group that was hardest hit. They just didn't even have time to say farewell to their classmates. I'm lucky this term. I'm teaching upper-level courses. I already know the students quite well, and we're doing them in real time via Zoom. The big challenge has been labs. I'm teaching one upper-level geoscience course that normally has outdoor field-based labs and field trips most weeks, and I'm having to completely rethink that and um, do some kind of video streaming of me and my son outside (laughs) doing things that I would normally have the students do. But it's it's heartening. The students are really craving interaction with each other. And so we had a lab session just on Tuesday afternoon. I gave them their their work that they were supposed to do, which was basically kind of a, a computational exercise. And I thought, well, okay, see you later. I'll be here on call if you need me. But all the students stayed online and were kind of talking to each other. Um, remotely and I think they're just really wanting that sense of community so
0: I think it must be really hard for for people that age you know yeah I think my kids are a little bit younger and it's challenging for them in some ways but I think they're young enough that they can kind of live in their own little home bubble
1: and and they're Um, probably enjoying more parental attention than usual
0: (laughs) and how about you how's it treating you
1: I'm, I'm a little bit of a nebbish anyway, so <laughs> in some ways, um, it doesn't. It's not a huge change in my lifestyle, but I have elderly parents. They're the ones I'm most worried about, and I, and I have three sons, two of whom are, well, ones in Connecticut and ones in Minneapolis, and, and that's just scary for me not to have. I, my mother bear instinct is to just get everybody in the den and <laughs> yeah, have wait for a while.
0: And beyond work, what do you do? Are you reading anything interesting? Are you gardening? What kinds of things?
1: Yeah, well, last night um, I just finished um, The Testaments so by Margaret Atwood, which was probably not a good thing to read in this dark time. <laughs> it ends well.
0: It, it's um, hard to figure out what the right book is these days.
1: Yeah. And I've, we've had some pretty nice spring-ish weather. So I've been out on some bike rides, not interacting with anyone along the way. And it's a little bit too early to plant, but I've, I've put some seeds in egg cartons in potting soil and they're, they're showing signs of coming up.
0: That sounds good. Yeah, I find I'm turning to the natural world a lot. We're probably a little further ahead than you, spring-wise. And, uh, it, I don't know, it gives me a lot of solace just to see things coming out of the ground.
1: Yeah, exactly. When everything else has been put on hold, spring is on schedule. <laughs>
0: enjoyed my chat with marcia Bjornrud. coming up i have two more socially distanced episodes to share with you one with amy hall from eileen fisher and one with violin maker brian skarstad i'll also have the next installation of my series on the apocalyptic a conversation with brian francis slattery about his apocalyptic novel lost everything if you have a moment please write me a positive review on apple podcasts or wherever you listen thank you